directing your attention, thank you, to the Gospel of John. And I feel to teach today, but there is expectation in the Spirit for ministry, so we'll just see where it naturally goes. I had a pastor. I served a pastor. We was assisting him in Texas. And his gifting, he was a natural gifted evangelist, but he's overseeing and pastoring the church. And it didn't matter how he started out with, you know, papers because he was going to teach. By the end of his session, tears are flowing down his face. He's talking about how great God is, and he's giving an invitation to the altar because he's just an evangelist. So I know that whatever giftings and operatings that this powerful church is, we're just going to flow in that even though I'm here to try to share with you today uh, some revelation from the Word of God. So good to have my wife and best-looking son here. I'll be in trouble for saying that. That's right. And also, high, high honor to your tremendous pastor and first lady. We love and appreciate them so much. What great friends they are, what great ministers they are. And this beautiful church, we love and appreciate you so much. Reading from John chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore Jesus knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And then let's skip down all the way to verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit to life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth, another reapeth. I sent you to reap that wherein you bestowed no labor, other men labored, and you are entered into their labors. I just want to talk and share with you a little bit today about evangelism. Ministry of evangelism, evangelism ministry, and um, show it through the Word of God and make it very practical, if I can, by the help of the Holy Ghost. And uh, then we'll let God do what God wants to do in the house today. Amen. Why don't you turn to someone beside you again and smile real big at them. My, that is awesome. God bless you. You may be seated. Got quiet there, but we were showing pearly whites, right? I would say what I started with yesterday, that Proverbs 11.30 tells us that he that winneth souls is wise. And the Scripture lets us know that if any lack wisdom, they can ask of God, and God will give liberally to them. We see the example of Solomon who asked for wisdom of how to judge God's people. Anytime that you ask for wisdom to fulfill the purpose of the kingdom of God, God is going to be so pleased with that, that if you're honestly asking for that, He will answer and give you wisdom, and also He will bless you in so many other things as well. So this story here happens in the city of Sychar, a city of Samaria, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. We can find this actual giving to his son Joseph very easily. In Joshua chapter 24, 32, you look at it later. The bones of Joseph were buried in a parcel of ground that Jacob gave as an inheritance to Joseph. So we can begin to pinpoint exactly where this story is taking place in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament city of Shechem lines up 
at least in very close proximity or probably the exact same city. So Sychar in our New Testament reading here today is probably the Old Testament of Shechem. And to understand the background of Sychar or Shechem, Jacob journeys to Succoth and buys a parcel of land from a man named Hamor. And Hamor is there. Now Jacob is there with his family and begins to be prosperous. Jacob has a beautiful daughter named Dinah. She is the daughter of Leah. And as Jacob is beginning to make his way and become prosperous, the son of Hamor, who sold the land to Jacob, the son of Hamor rapes Dinah. Even though he has defiled this daughter of Jacob, he declares that he is in love with her. That's a strange way to show love. Says that he is in love with her, and you can see how spoiled this young man is by him going to his father and not apologizing or saying, I made mistakes, but demanding of his father that Hamar would go to Jacob and secure the hand of Dinah so that he could marry her. And so the father is going to talk with Jacob, and he's looking to somehow smooth things over, to bring gifts so that he can make this request that his son Shechem would marry the daughter of Jacob, Dinah. And the brothers of Dinah were very deceitful as they stopped and they um, decided that they would circumvent the meeting of Hamar with Jacob and they began to make their own agreements with Hamar concerning his son Shechem and the marrying of Dinah. And they let him know that we're a very religious people, children of Israel, children of Jacob. And it is disgusting to us physically, this is what they said, that we would have any boy born in, or anyone married into our family that has not been physically circumcised. So the only way that we would agree because that makes you different from a heathen is to become physically circumcised. And Hamor agreed that they would do this. Not only Shechem, but Hamor and all the men in that city would do this. And then the Bible lets us know that on the third day after all of these men were sore and discomfited, as the Bible says, that Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah, took swords and slew every man in the city and every man in the household of Hamar, including Shechem himself. They used religious agreements and ceremony to somehow exact their revenge. And when Jacob finds out what happens, he said that you guys have made me a stink among the inhabitants of the land. Here we're trying to be spiritual people, but you use the whole spiritual identity. You use the whole religious thing to somehow be abusive and to be hurtful and to be unkind. And you have made my name a stink to everyone in this area. So Shechem represents a place of spiritual abuse, of hypocrisy, of advantage, people taking advantage of religion or saying they're religious in order to have their way and avenge what they want to avenge. Later in the scripture, 1 Chronicles 6, around verse 67, we find that Shechem became a city of refuge, which is very nice, and I don't have to have time to talk about city of refuges, but basically people who were in trouble and were allowed to go, they might have killed somebody in self-defense, they would go to Shechem, and there they would be safe as long as they stayed in the city. But because of that, generations of individuals living in a city of refuge, now you're going to have children of murderers, grandchildren of murderers, and this is just naturally what begins to happen in a city as people who have done things need to run to a place of habitation in a city of refugee. So Samaria has become a place of religious bigotry, a place of hypocrisy. Sychar is right in the middle of that. In the New Testament, John 8 and 48, we see that they accused Jesus of two things. And in their mind, it was the same thing. They accused Jesus of having a devil and being from Samaria. 
Because in their mind, if you have a devil, you had to be from Samaria. You see the picture. And if they're from Samaria, obviously they're possessed. So this is what they accuse Jesus of. He has a devil, he's from Samaria. It's a bad reputation. It is a burned out field. It is a place that has been hurt by church hurt. It has been broken and abused because of individuals trying to get vengeance or revenge and using religion to do that. So Jesus now, in the gospel, begins his miraculous ministry in Cana of Galilee by turning the water at a wedding into wine. And now he travels immediately after the Cana miracle to Capernaum, which is a city in Galilee. Now, Galilee is on the northern part of the land of Israel. And then just beneath it is a province called Samaria. And then beneath that is Judea. So Jesus is doing all of these miracles in the northern portion of the land of Israel. It's a, it's a province, if you will, that includes the cities of Capernaum and Cana and Chorazin, and Nazareth. And these are the cities that he's visiting and doing miracles in. But then the feast begins to happen in Jerusalem. And so he makes his way down from Galilee through Samaria into Judea. Judea is the place where um, Jerusalem is there and Bethlehem is there and Jericho is there and Emmaus. So these are the cities that you'll find down in Judea. And there Jesus begins to minister and to teach and he gets quite a following. He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple as we see in that title of John chapter 2. And, and people begin to follow him. He begins to to baptize people. But now his following is so large that the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes hear that Jesus is even a bigger deal than John the Baptist now. And so Jesus decides that he needs to leave Judea because it's not time for him to be arrested and taken as the Lamb of God to Calvary's hill. So he must needs go through Samaria to get back to Galilee. This is absolutely the only way, unless he goes miles out of the way and over mountains, this is the way to go from Judea to Galilee. He's got to go that way physically. But when we see what's happening here in the story, it's more than what he's naturally doing in his day's journey. It's absolutely a need that he has, a hunger, a thirst that he has, he has to go through Samaria. So he is now traveling up through Judea, headed toward Galilee, and he is in Samaria and comes to a well that Jacob dug years ago right there in Shechem or in our city, Sychar. And he sits because of the weariness of the journey. And from Judea to Galilee is about 75 miles. And perhaps if the road was more winding, it could be maybe 85, 90 miles. It's a fairly short journey from a car, but Jesus has forgot to get his Honda. So he, he's just walking, right? And the journey causes him to be tired, and he sits on the well of Jacob and sends all the disciples into the city of Sychar there to fetch meat. They're weary, they're tired, they need something to eat, so you guys go to McDonald's. And Jesus sets on the well of, Joseph, or well of Jacob, and he begins to rest there. It's interesting to me that Jesus sent all the disciples. Why didn't he send two of them? Half of them. But all of them are encouraged to go into the city so that he absolutely can be sitting there all by himself. As he is sitting there all by himself, there is a woman that comes to the well. Scripture lets us know that it's 12 o'clock noon when this happens. And the culture of that time and place, you went to get water early in the morning before the sun got hot. But this woman is coming all by herself, not with other individuals. She has a vessel to draw water, and she's coming at the heat of the day. It seems obvious that she was not a part of what social movements and groups they had. And as we began to read the story, you began to see why the women didn't trust her. 
They didn't like her. They didn't want to be a part of what she was doing, so she's decided she would only go when nobody else is going to be there. Now we get all the way down to verse 7, and as the woman begins to approach Jesus, Jesus speaks to her and asks her this question, Will you give me to drink? Now obviously, there's a need for him to drink. He's been on a journey. It would seem inconceivable to me that Jesus would let all the disciples go into the city before someone gave him something to drink. Surely someone would take care of him. Someone would get him some water. But he's declaring a drink. I'm thinking it's not near as much physical thirst he has as something spiritual is moving within him of evangelism ministry. The first thing that he has to do is break down walls. Because there are barriers and there are walls that are so strong with culture, with male-female, with Jew-Samaritan, with stranger versus friendship. And so he makes himself vulnerable and speaks to her in a way that allows her to realize she can do something for him. She has value. This is a difficult thing when we approach people, complete strangers, when we approach people today because if we ask for something like that, immediately we're going to be put in a category of, uh, you know, someone with a cardboard box and a cup and, and you know, I'll, I'll work for, you know, you smile and I'll, I, I want a Big Mac, you know, or, or just give me 20 bucks because I might want to use it for uh, drugs or alcohol. I mean, just a beggar. That's what we would see. So it might be difficult for us to understand the practicality of making ourselves seemingly in need so that a stranger that we're speaking to can absolutely do something for us of value. I think there's simple things that uh, I've seen and I've experienced. Um, your hands are full. Someone comes and opens a door for you. It's just a real quick thing, but a person now feels valuable, like they have done something for you. A simple asking of directions. I, I'm lost. I need to know where to go. And simple things that I'm asking. But some kind of statement that allows you to show your need and gives that person that is a stranger value for who they are. So Jesus is saying, give me to drink. And walls and barriers are starting to come down. Also, she is very intrigued because this is not something that naturally would happen. A stranger would not naturally talk to someone at this well. A Jew would absolutely not talk to a Samaritan because of all the prejudice of the time. You know, we even have, um, you know, the, the nod. What's up? When we walk by. And we do that because that's more comfortable as strangers. But to actually speak to someone and to talk to them and to share with them, that's something that we don't normally do. And it's intriguing to people if you will actually be kind enough to speak to them instead of nod or sup, you know. Talk to them just a little bit. So she's intrigued because of these three levels of he's breaking cultural understanding with the male, female, Jew, Samaritan, stranger, friend thing. And now she is going to respond and she focuses not on the differences but on the things in common, thirst. Here he has spoken to her and said, thirst. She's bringing her vessel, which is thirst, so they have a commonality. However we speak to people, strangers, however we respond to them, the commonality is very important for us, that we have something in common that we are alike, that we can find our, our sameness and not focus on our differences. And this is very important for ministry in evangelism. Kindness. And the gentleness of Jesus breaks down more barriers. And she decides to not only engage in conversation, but to go right to the elephant in the room. <laughs> and she says, well, how can you, who's a Jew, speak to me, who is a Samaritan? And she begins to try to find out why is he being kind to me. If you look at the story, you'll find out that she's not unaccustomed to talking to men. If you don't know the story yet, you'll find out in a minute. <laughs> She's not unaccustomed to talking to men. She's not uncomfortable speaking to men. 
She's done it many times. She's bridged that gap. But something about this was not a leer from Jesus and a checking her out. And, but this was a very much a friendly, openness, vulnerable conversation. And so she begins to speak about the elephant in the room. And she says, uh, how can you do this? Jesus speaks this to her. And He says, if you knew the gift of God, He's introducing now absolutely, we're talking about spiritual things, we're talking about godly things, and He said, if you knew the gift of God, that's the first thing. And the second thing that He introduces to her is I'm not like every other man that you've talked to. Don't pigeon me as, oh, He's just a Jew. Because that's what she was doing. He was saying, you've got to give me a chance because if you really knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you to give me something to drink, if you had this knowledge, you would say, no, 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 no. I needed to get a drink from you because that drink would be an everlasting water that you would never thirst again. So he is absolutely moving it straight to the spiritual from a ministry of just a stranger speaking to her through vulnerability. It goes right to the elephant in the room. How can you speak to me? I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. So now he goes right to the point of finding out if she really is hungry for God things. I have encountered this so many times, and I've got to be careful with operating in gifts of the Spirit outside of church services. If I, for example, go to a restaurant and a waitress comes up many, many times, I will know things in the Holy Ghost about this individual. But if I just grab them by the hand and I say, I see that there's trouble in your marriage and, and you're worried about your and I start doing that, well, I'm going to run that person off. Because they didn't come to church where they know it's going to be spiritual stuff. They're on the job trying to make a little change, right? So I, what I have to do is just speak something that lets them know I'm talking about godly stuff. So simple saying that, you know, man, we had a powerful service last night, or I'm so, this is a beautiful day that God has made for us, aren't we blessed? Just something to speak about God things. And their response to that lets me know immediately if they're hungry or they're not. People will shut it down and talk about something else, or they'll find a quick reason to leave but if they're hungry and they're ready to be ministered to, then they will respond in like form something about God, something about the hunger and the spirit that is in their hearts. So Jesus calls this gift that he wants to offer to her living water. So he is explaining it in a parallel that just like water in the physical realm is something you have to have. And that your body begins to crave. What I'm talking about is something that your soul has to have and your soul craves. But this is not something that you're going to have to keep coming because this is going to give you everlasting thirst quencher and you'll never have to drink again. This is what you're thirsty for. This is what you're hungry for. This is what you are desiring. Then he begins to reveal himself to her very gently. And very slowly, she's understanding it's not physical anymore. So as she is searching for who he is, this one that is trying to minister to her, she goes back to another commonality of her religious background. And she says, our father Jacob built this well. His, descent, his, his ancestors are Jacob. Her ancestors are Jacob. And so she's saying, our Father, together, me and you are in this same boat. That's talking about receiving ministry. He built this well. So are you somebody that's greater than Jacob? Now, I've heard people say that, you know, she was like, hey, Jacob built this well. You think you're greater than him. I don't think that is all is what's being said here because you can see her heart and her openness and her vulnerability as she's starting to speak these things and receiving what Jesus is declaring. I believe she's honestly trying to figure out who he is. 
Jacob is the most powerful person in her past that she knows of, and she's saying, well, he did such great things like this well that we're getting physical water from from generations. Are you telling me because you've got ever, or you've got a, a, a thirst that I'll never, or you've got water that you'll never thirst again? Are you greater than what Jacob did? Because he is probably the most spiritual and powerful man I know. And when she begins to open that up, then Jesus begins to share what this living water is that it will spring up into everlasting life for you. So now there's no doubt that he's talking about spiritual life, spiritual sustenance, peace, joy, blessing of your spirit. And her response is, you sold me. I'll take some of this. Yeah, I want peace. Yeah, I want joy. Yeah, I want the craving of my heart and my spirit filled so that I'm not always looking and longing and thirsting for what is the meaning of life. Yes, I want that. And so Jesus speaks to her, and this is very important here. He says, well, go, go get your husband. He knows the situation she's in. And she responds to him and says, well... I don't have any husband. And she, he says, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. I told you she was pretty good at talking to guys, right? And so she has allowed herself to show the vulnerability, not just of all the mistakes she's made, but she's saying, here is my thirst. I've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And every time I thought, hey, this is the one. And I felt all them butterflies. And I said, hey, I'm going to commit to this man for the rest of my life. I thought it was going to bring that love that I've been looking for, that fulfillment that I've been looking for. And it wasn't too long until this happened and that happened. And I realized this didn't fulfill what I was looking for. And she said, somehow through all that hurt and all that confusion, I managed to heal enough. And when that next guy came along, I'm like, okay, this could be the one. I'm not sure, but this could be the one. And the hurt after two and three and four how does she still keep searching and seeking and hoping that there's somebody she is being so vulnerable about how desperate she is for love and Jesus has tried to get her to that place where she recognize that she has a soul that is looking to be loved and the love of a man is not going to fulfill it you have to have the love of God I have no husband. I've heard some individuals say that this was, you know, a, again, a rebuke. But I believe that Jesus probably said this with tears in his eyes. Because her response is not one of hurt and mad and confusion. But her response is drawing closer to him. He's absolutely let her know, I see that there's a lot of hurt that has been in your life and that you've looked for love in all of these places and haven't found it. But I'm telling you, this is a place where you're going to find what you're thirsty. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, gifts of the Spirit are operating. The prophetic is happening. Walls are now beginning to absolutely fall at their feet. Truth is being revealed all this talk about living water and exactly what is this living water, this thirst that cannot be quenched, is a, it's absolutely a precursor to leading them to a place of ministry. And now she says, I perceive that you are a prophet from God. And she absolutely makes him a vessel of God, a minister of God to minister to her. She speaks about him being anointed, him being powerful in God. You obviously walk with God. You have been a place where I need to go. You have something that I can receive. You're a prophet of God. And her limited understanding, you're a prophet of God. And she starts talking about worship. She talks about the things that she feels good about spiritually in her life. And she begins to say this about worship. She says, my fathers, my religion taught me that what I was supposed to do is to worship in this mountain. But I, I know your religion, your, your religion taught you, your fathers taught you that you were supposed to go to Jerusalem. And she said, there's differences with our religion 
with our path to God, with what we have been taught. What I want to know is, can I love and can I worship God? She's looking for the right place and the right time to worship. And when she begins to expose this need, then Jesus does not drop her. But He says unto her, Woman, the time is now when true worshipers, that's a beautiful word, true worshipers. It's saying there's a lot of people out there going through programs and going through church services and going through things, but people that really want to be true worshipers, they understand that they have a Father that desires to worship them, a Heavenly Father. And He wants you to worship them in spirit and in truth. She goes a little further trying to gain some more revelation. And she said, you know, I've heard that Messiah is coming. And when He comes, He'll give us all this revelation and give us all this truth. And Jesus speaks to her and says, I'm the Christ. He that's speaking to you am He. I'm Him. Scripture lets us know that she goes into the city of Sychar to testify. And she talks to all the men, not the women. She has no influence with the women. She talks to all the men, and she says, Come here, a man that told me everything that I've not. He didn't tell me, oh, yeah, you've got five husbands. That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about who she really is in the deep of her heart, that Jesus exposed that. He told me all things ever that I am. Come and see for yourself. And because of the influence she had with the men of the city, they came out and ministered. But I want you to see how Jesus ministers to her, and then she starts going back into the city. And now we read here in John 4 that while she's going to the city, the disciples are coming back. They are passing her. And it's interesting that none of the disciples wanted to say, why were you talking to her? Don't you know she's a Samaritan? Or don't you know she's kind of got a loose reputation? Nobody said anything to him because of the peace they felt in his relationship or his ministry of evangelism with her. And so Jesus uses this as a teaching moment and said, I sent you into a city of great harvest. But you couldn't see it that way because of the bigotry of what you learned in the past and the prejudice that people have touched you with and how other people have done this and said this in that city. I'm sending you to a place of great city. What did you find there? He's trying to get their vision to see that there is a great harvest in that burnt over field, in that place that has all kind of crazy ideas and hates God. This is where the harvest is. Then the, five, the men come out and Jesus ministered to them. They appeal to him to stay and he has absolutely a great revival in Samaria. I believe that this is a beautiful example of how we should operate in personal evangelism. Too often what we do is we invite people to church. Now anything we do is awesome. So I'm not trying to tear anything down. But when we just invite people to church, they have to go leaps and bounds to find a relationship of ministry. Because that's what they need. One of the best ways to make disciples in our culture today is to teach Bible studies. Because you're having a ministry relationship where you're sharing, they're sharing the Word of God. They're seeing you as someone that comes from God. And you're touching them in places of their hunger and their desire spiritually. You're giving them water that they'll never thirst again. And they can decide what they want. If we're just inviting people to church, that's good. But it's very easy for them to just look at a church and not receive personal evangelism ministry. And just walk away and compare churches or Compare religions and get lost in the whole thing. Well, my father taught me to worship in this mountain, and your father taught that, and all the confusion. But when there's personal evangelism, now there's a connection that you have something from God to give them. And every time they want that fulfilled, they have a place and a person that they can go to. I am, I'm going to say it again, 
I'm a strong introvert. So my habit or my preference would be to talk to nobody, ever. I've been asked what I do for fun, and jokingly I said I go to my room, turn the lights off, and sit in the dark. Blessed peace. It's, it's not that bad. I, I don't deal with depressions and things like that. been blessed, but I enjoy being by myself. My wife is included in that circle, but even sometimes need a holiday far away from each other. And so there's times that I need to be completely by myself. But I am being pressed of the Spirit in just the past few months that everywhere I must needs go. Walked through security the other day, TSA. It's one of the most aggravating places to go. Stand in line behind people that have no clue what to do. You've done it a thousand times. And you're standing behind all this stuff trying to get through because you're on a time schedule, your flight's going to leave. So we got through security. Lois was just behind me. She went through the long line. I went through the short one. You just pick the wrong one sometimes, I'm telling you, right? And so I was waiting on her. And as she came to join me, and we had her carry-ons, I turned to go and I saw a man. He's a big uh, African-American looking man, big man. He's sitting on one of them chairs right outside, and he's just sitting there. But I feel compassion to him. And so I didn't, I didn't know what to do, but I just moved over to where he was and put my hand on his shoulder. And I started praying to my Heavenly Father. I said, Our Father, you know exactly where this man is. And when I began to pray, he started heaving, crying, weeping. And I prayed a prayer of hope and of blessing and that the immediate need that this man had, that he would find connection and that God would be a help and blessing. And honestly, I don't know that I was supposed to do any more, but I prayed a prayer for him, never Spoke my name to him. He never spoke his name to me. And then I just walked away. I don't know if I'm doing exactly what I was supposed to do. But I know that as I needs be go through the airport, that there is somebody here that needs a prayer. I sat down on a plane headed to Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, it was... It was very unusual. I usually fly into a city if it's far enough for me to fly into. I need a helicopter to fly up here, Pastor. I, I, and I usually fly in. If I'm preaching Sunday, I'll fly in Saturday, you know, midday, so everything goes smooth and stuff. But I can't remember the reason, but I waited till Sunday morning to fly up to Madison. I was preaching in that great revival church that morning. I only had like two hours total from when I land to get a rental car to be picked up, whatever it was, and to get to the, to the church. So when I get on the plane, it's Sunday morning, a pretty early flight. The flight attendant greets me. He's, he's got a lot, nice little goatee looking there, African-American, maybe about six foot two, sharp looking guy, dressed very well. And um, I, I speak to him and greet him, and he looks at me and doesn't say much, but he's looking at me kind of staring at me. And so, you know, I, I just went on to my seat, and he said, oh, by the way, you've got your own personal plane today. I said, am I the only one riding? He said, well, there's about six or seven of us in the small plane, but maybe, maybe 40-something seats, and there was only six people on the plane at the time. So I said, that's great, and we got up in the air, and it's going to be about an hour, 40-minute flight, and so I pulled down the uh, the tray tables, and I put my Bible and, and my notes and stuff up there, and I was going to go over what I'm going to be preaching in just about three hours or four hours. So I'm going over that stuff. And, and he begins his journey down the aisle, and this businessman and that businessman. And since the seats were all open, I just took one toward the back where I wouldn't be bothered and just, you know, taking both seats that I almost fit in both of them together, right, and got the tray tables down. And so when he gets down to me and he's asking for my drink, he sees the Bible that's open. And he says, you're a preacher, aren't you? I said, 
well, I don't think I can hide it. You know, I got my Bible open here. And I said, yes, sir. He said, God put you on this plane to give me a prophetic word. And he took off. He said, I'm going to take care of these other guests, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to hear the prophetic word God's given you. Well, he leaves, and I'm praying because I didn't know that God was giving me a prophetic word. He has already moved to a place where barriers of strangers and ministry and stuff, and he has leapfrogged all of that because of his great hunger and desire. And he's telling me, I need direction, and I need a godly answer in my life. I've tried other things, but I need something from God. So I'm praying. I'm desperately asking God, what is the word? And all the Holy Ghost will speak to me is the prophecy of Acts chapter 2, verse 39. So I told him, God wants to fill you with the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in tongues. And he said, my grandma believes in that. And I've been to her church a few times. He said, let me take care of them, and I'm coming back, and you give me that gift. So I'm praying for faith and, you know, everything I can possibly. i, I got to be ready for what's going on here, right? He takes care of everybody. we still got about an hour on the trip, and he comes and plops down beside me. Now, you know them chairs, right? We are right up against each other. And so I start talking to him, and I said, well, this is what the Scripture says in Acts chapter 2 and 38, that we must repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in tongues, which is the original or the foundational beginning of your walk with God as a new birth experience. And he's like, okay, okay, so what do I got to do first? I said, repent. Do you understand what that is? He said, yeah, <laughs> I've done that before. I said, okay, now what I was going to do is lay hands on his shoulder, you know. We're shoulder to shoulder, so just kind of do this. And I started praying like this. Father, you've been so good to us. I mean, there's six other, five other people on the plane. Father, you've been so good to us. But we come to you right now with a need in our life. And when I got to that, he starts repenting, but not quietly like I am. He's just, he just going for it. And I'm, I'm looking over all the seats, and I'm thinking, my, you know, if they throw us out of this place, it's a long way to land. No one's paying us any attention. I don't know if God just, you know, turned off the, everybody's hearing aids or what it was. Nobody's paying any attention to us. And he's back here praying, so, man, you're going to pray like that? I know how to pray like that. So we're getting with it, and we're repenting. And there's a beautiful presence of God that falls in that place, 38,000 feet in the air. And God begins to wash and to cleanse. And there's a peace and there's a joy. And I'm rejoicing with him because the Scripture says that if you'll just be faithful to repent, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and to remove them as far as the east is from the west. And he said, okay, what now? I said, well, you need to commit in baptism. He said, hey, whatever, whatever the Word of God says in baptism, I'm going to do it. I said, okay, you're ready to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So I gave him just a little bit of kind of what we talked about last night. And I said, okay, are you ready to receive it? We need to start worshiping. And again, he threw his hands up and he's hallelujah. I need you. I recognize how good you are. I need you in my life. So I just boldly plopped my hands on his head and said, right now, by the power of the name of Jesus, receive you the gift of the Holy Ghost. He begins to speak in tongues immediately as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. I'm praying in the Spirit. I done got my boldness and my faith back. I'm praying in the Spirit. He's praying in the Spirit. Nobody's even looking at us. We rejoice in the Holy Ghost for a little while, and beep, there goes the sun. We're starting to land. We've got like 25 minutes, and he said, oh. And so he jumps up, and he runs off and does what he has to do. And, and I wait to the last person to be on the plane because I needed to speak to him. And so when we start to go off, I said, do you have a minute? And he said, yes. So we stepped just aside, and I said, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The only way anybody in the church was baptized is that way in the Bible. I can show it to you. And I, I you know, ran off with Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 10 and 19 and just make sure that he knew there were places to go. And he said, well, where, where can I go and have that happen? I said, uh, where do you live? He said, Sacramento, California. And I had a friend that pastors Sacramento. So I looked up the address real quickly. And when I told him the address, he said, that's 
less than a half mile from where I live. And he said, when I fly back and get a couple days off, I'm taking my living girlfriend and her son, and we are going to that church, and we're going to get baptized, all of us, in the name of Jesus. What I'm saying is this. Even if we're not good at it, even if we're introverts and it's not our personality, if you let the Holy Ghost make up the difference, God's going to lead you to people that are hungry, that are desperate because they're thirsty. They're hungry. This is the promise that I want to share with you. When the disciples come back, they're like, hey, we got all these Big Macs and Quarter Pounders. What do you want? And Jesus is like, I, I don't want that food. And they're like, what? You, you, you're going to have to eat because the journey's been long and you've not eaten. And he says, I've got meat to eat that you know not of. Is to do the will of my Father. In this world, when the battle is against us of weariness and exhaustion and feeling like we're never catching up, there is a spiritual rest, a spiritual sustenance that comes when we involve ourselves in some personal evangelism. I want you to see that when Jesus fed the 5,000, he's exhausted and he has to go to the mountaintop. But when he ministers one-on-one with the woman at the well of Samaria, he don't even feel like he needs food because he's been strengthened and encouraged and blessed. This is a supernatural revelation that if you're feeling exhausted and your ministry's frustrated or you're trying to find this and that, if you'll find yourself in personal evangelism, strength is going to come, stress is going to leave, your peace is going to be there. This is an answer to so much of what we need will be found because it's meat to eat. That don't even make sense, but it's a spiritual revelation where you can renew and revive and find strength. The key to personal evangelism is where you must needs be go. Some of you got to get up tomorrow, go to work. That's where you needs be going the physical. That's where you needs be going the spiritual. Break down walls with whatever kindness and gentleness. Make them feel like they have value. They can do something for you. You have a need. Break down the walls. Begin to speak to them. Everyone has this desire for love. Everyone has this desire for worship. God created every human being with that in their heart. Most people don't know what it is. They're just seeking after something else. And that never fulfills the thirst in their life. They're worshiping everything else. In this town, we know a lot of what they're worshiping. It becomes their God. And if their God doesn't provide exactly what they need, they're depressed and they're hopeless and they're, if their God, whatever it is, does not provide, then they still have a thirst in them. This town is full of people that, yeah, act like a bunch of women at the well of Samaria, but they're trying desperately to be loved. And they have a strong desire to worship. They just need someone to help lead them to where they can find that. I want you to stand with me today, if you would. This is what I feel prophetically. Is that there has already been a breakthrough on campus. And what you have been praying for and asking God for, been prophesied to about, has already happened in the spiritual realm. We need some intercessors to bring in the spiritual realm into the physical realm, to birth what's in the spiritual realm into the physical realm. There needs to be intercession for what we're going to be involved in with our prayer services and our ministry on campus. But beyond the campus, this is a city that is ripe right now and ready for harvest. Is it a burn over field? In a lot of ways, yes. Is it a confused people? Absolutely. And that's the very city that the disciples can go into. But if they're not open, they can pass the very individual that's bringing a revival to the whole city. If they're not open, that as they needs be are just going and passing people, that's the one.
That's the one hungry. I'm praying that God would put in us the help that we need to move past our personalities, beyond our comfort zones, and actually the way that we love people in church to demonstrate that love. The way that we pray for them in intercession with compassion to move past just an intercession and have a little evangelism ministry and show the love that you have for them. And that the revival that is already available to us will begin to demonstrate in the physical realm. Not so that anything else can happen except that our Father's will would be done. Not so we can grow the biggest church in the city. Not so we can be recognized all over the district as really being powerful and awesome. Not so that everybody will want pastor to run all over the nation telling them how he's having such great revival. No, so that our Father's will would be done. In this place today, as I've been teaching, as I've been teaching, I'm seeing tears in a few eyes because you're hungry for true love. And you are a worshiper. You don't even realize you're a worshiper. You've involved yourself with a lot of things that you're trying to find, and that's, that's worship. But you're a worshiper, and you're seeking. I want you to know you're in the right place today. Because we're just trying to help ourselves become more like Jesus today with teaching and instruction and seminars. And we've got a true heart of compassion for you. And we want healing to happen for you. Miracles to happen for you. We want you to find your soul's satisfaction where you'll never thirst and wonder where's the meaning of life. That's, that's what we found. That's what we want you to find. I'm trying to make myself vulnerable, difficult from behind this podium. But if you knew the desire of my heart to see you changed, healed, life to come, you would do me a favor by letting me pray for you. I'm not going to force anything on you. But if you really do have a desire to be loved and you've not found the fulfillment of that, and you really do desire to worship, even though you maybe never have identified it as that way, then we're going to take just a few moments in this service, and we're going to let God love us, and we're going to love Him, and we're going to worship. And the hunger and desires of your heart is here for you to respond.